Good afternoon. Welcome to the workshop, Maintainers. My name is Debbie, and I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator of this session. Hi, Debbie. Uh, help us preserve the cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, and an ask it basket questions. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. Uh, the reading is from today, uh, page 81, and is there anybody who'd like to volunteer to read? Please. Okay, well, why don't, why don't I come down, Paul, come down, come down with the book, and you can speak into the mic. Page 81. Here's the microphone. Hi. Page 81. It, from March 21st to 4 today. It, is it so small a thing to have enjoyed the sun, to have lived light in the spring, to have loved, to have thought, to have done? Matthew Arnold. Is a day important only if it is filled with big deeds and heroics? I used to think so. Today, I consider a day well spent if I enjoyed something I once took for granted. How wonderful to feel good physically and emotionally, to notice things I never saw before. Were there always flowers by the side of the road here? Today I feel exhilarated when I see a self-defeating habit go. I sense a new strength in myself when I risk closeness, when I give up prescription thinking for my own thoughts. All these wonders and more make it a perfect day, a day without the escape of compulsive overeating, a day to live life as naturally as can be. For today... There is a time in my day to stop and take notice of what is around me, the air, a fragrance, a sound. For one minute, I can forget what I have to do and let myself feel the moment with all the intensity of my being. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, well, our first speaker is uh, Barbara, who will speak for 25 minutes. Hi, I'm Barbara, compulsive overeater. Hi. Hi, it's really good, really, really good to be here. I can't tell you how good it is to identify myself as a compulsive overeater today. And it always surprises me how I never know how I'm going to feel or what I'm going to say when I get up to, to share. And the topic is not that well defined. I mean, I've got to <laughs> keep on keeping on maintenance, um, which is like an, a miracle beyond my wildest dreams. I never, 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 never could conceive of maintaining my weight. It was something that was not a possibility for me. Um, someone who like me, had dieted unsuccessfully for the 10 years of my eating career, and that to me seems like a very short period of time when I look back over my life. Um, it's a very short period of time I look back over my life. I've, uh, I'm, I'm just amazed. But that, those 10 years, I did a, a lot of very significant damage to myself, um, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And in those 10 years, I went from being a, a kid who was always pretty much a normal weight, really not ever identified as, as pudgy. I didn't have to wear chubby clothes for, for girls. Um, I, that was just not part of my experience. Um, 
I always thought about food a lot when I was a kid or really probably more I, I thought about food. I don't know if that's normal or not normal. I didn't really start gaining weight until I was in my mid-teens. And once I started, I couldn't stop. And, and I've said this thousands of times. I started um, high school at 115 pounds. I graduated high school at 153. I was on hundreds of diets in my head in that period of time uh, because every day was always another diet for me and another failure. And I was able to succeed at dieting um, very briefly uh, on a couple of occasions. Once so successfully, if you want to identify it as such, uh, I was called an anorexic for a very, very short period of time, enough for the doctor di to diagnose me as such for him to go to Europe for six weeks to come back and I was 27 pounds heavier, that label left me permanently, no one ever, ever, ever even insinuated that I might be anything close to an anorexic. Um, but the, the physical damage I did, just, you know, the beat goes on. I mean, for me, that's really actually a pretty good thing. Um, 115 pounds at 15 years old, 153 at um, just turning 18, up and down the scale in between them, anorexic for a couple of minutes, age 19, 189 pounds, uh, stopped weighing at that point. I don't know if I went any higher. Um, what was coupled with this, the escalation of my weight was a, a panic and a terror that I lived with on a daily basis that I didn't know what I was going to do, um, where the food would take me because I am very much an addict and very much like an alcoholic, um, I had to go and do what I had to do because the disease drove me to do that. Not because I wanted to. I don't believe that's true for probably any compulsive overeater. It wasn't because I loved food so much. It was because I'm an addict, and the only way that I could take to quiet the noise in my head, the quiet, the fear in my heart, was to shut down as completely and totally as possible, and the most effective way of doing that was to eat until I didn't feel a thing. And then every part of my being, physical, emotional, and spiritual, those doors shut one at a time until I was completely anesthetized and then the cycle would start again. It was a very, very frightening, depressing, uh, demoralizing way to live. And I, in fact, did not feel like I was alive. And I guess the beginning of my talk is the beat, how the beat went on when I was eating compulsively. It never stopped. It absolutely never stopped. I was able to stop my eating on very sporadic diets in between the age of 15 and 25 on two occasions where I went to, uh, arrived at a goal weight. Only twice that I can tell you that I actually arrived at what I call the goal weight, which was always, for some reason, 115 pounds. I don't know why, but that's the number that I picked. And, in fact, I thought I was five four and a half. so that seems I found out later that I'm actually 5'5", five five. Um, which, of course, meant that I, you know, you work out the math and somehow it became thinner automatically. Um, but that seemed like a good goal weight. And I did arrive at that weight twice in that 10-year period of time. At many other occasions I got within 10 or 15 or 20 pounds, 30 pounds. For a long time I thought 165 would be really great. 170 was really great. Maintaining my weight at any level was something I was completely unable to achieve on my own until I came to this program. I couldn't maintain my weight fat at any given weight. I couldn't say, I weigh 189 pounds today. Next week, I'll weigh 189. 
It just wasn't true for me. The devastation that this did to me in terms of demoralization, emotional demoralization, um, was very easily evidenced in my life. When I graduated from high school, I started on my college career, and I dropped out of college. Um, part of it was influenced by, I thought, by the boyfriend that I had selected, and he didn't really care if I was in college. I used all kinds of external excuses for dropping out of school, but the fact was that I couldn't function. The fact was that I couldn't go to school. I felt it was because of the way that I looked. I knew it was because of a deep depression that I was in, which I believe has really um, pretty much colored my entire life. And so I dropped out of school, and my four-year four education took five years to complete. And at that time, when I, quote, should have graduated in 1972, I graduated in 1973. Now, parents here in this room probably would applaud. God, my kid got a four-year degree in five years. This is like a remarkable achievement because now people are taking six years to do the same thing or, or, or longer. But then people, you entered it right after high school, you went to school, you graduated four years later if you went to college, and my friends did go to college. So I felt really um, embarrassed and, and ashamed of the fact that um, I was driven driven out of school by, by something I didn't know was a disease. Um, I came to the program knowing almost nothing about myself, except really I can tell you that I knew my name, I knew my address, I knew the zip code, I, I knew I had a bad sense of direction. But I knew nothing about what was going on inside of me. I really, really, really was clueless. I thought that I knew a lot because I had been, really, I had a library of self-help books um, in my bedroom all the way from the age of 15, 16, all the way on. I just collected those things, and I, I knew that something was going to fix me. Of course, the diet would fix me. That was really the, the, fat, the first solution that I, um, I knew would be the, the way to easy street because my formula was very simple for me. Um, it didn't have anything to do with internal development, character development, learning how to relate to people, building relationships, walking through problems, facing my fears. None of these things were on the agenda. I had no idea that that's what life was about. No clue. I thought, here's a picture of a model on a magazine. At that time, 17 magazine models looked really, really cute to me. If I could just look like that model... Everything would be fine because I'd open the book of life and there would be a boyfriend. There would be fun. There would be, I don't know. I just knew that I would feel better. Clothes, that was part of it. And that was about all that I wanted. I didn't want very much for myself. I wanted so little for myself. My dreams were very, very, very small dreams. Very small dreams. I didn't know about peace of mind, serenity, surrender, um, or living life on life's terms. I had no idea. Certainly I didn't have any experience of that in my home of origin. Um, I, I grew up with mental illness in the family. I didn't know they were mentally ill. I thought they were just kind of a strange group. Um, but men, mental illness is something that's very pervasive in my own nuclear family uh, and in my family, my extended family as well. So I'm really basically the only survivor out of my childhood. Um, in my fourth year of abstinence, my youngest darling brother committed suicide. And my other brother, three years apart from me, um, is very, very severely mentally ill, paranoid, schizophrenic, and uh, very, a very seriously ill guy. So I, out of three kids, I'm the only one that has a normal life. So the fact that I am a compulsive overeater and I got my pick of diseases now certainly wasn't conscious, I am very, very grateful 
because I certainly have had the opportunity, by virtue of my pain and, and being blessed with willingness and being exposed to this program, uh, to, to have a full life and to have a life that, that is not something possible for the other, uh, my other siblings. Um, this program is, is just such a remarkable, has put me on such a remarkable path. And it keeps changing. I mean, the, the, I started talking about main, maintenance, this idea of maintaining my weight. Because when I was able to lose my weight, it was only for a couple of minutes that I actually stayed at that weight, um, I really knew, um, being a historian by nature, that I looked at my history, I looked at my experience, and so I drew conclusions based on what had happened to me in my life. And the conclusion was, maybe I can lose my weight again. Probably not. Um, it's impossible since I tried hundreds of times to do that, to do, to do that, uh, that I would certainly never, if I lost my weight, I certainly would never take it off. And by the time I arrived, take it off and keep it off, by the time I arrived in OA, I did not believe it was possible to even lose my weight. That's how low I had gone. I truly came in here pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralized from every avenue of life that I had explored. I, on some avenues I was successful at, I got through college, I got my four-year degree, I went to Europe, I put myself through college, I supported myself, I escaped that household, um, I had what I thought were friends around me, I had what I thought was a full experience in my life, but I had the inner empties, this big giant hole in my gut, and I had no means or tools or methods for dealing with life on life's terms. And so there was only one alternative for me, and that was to go back to eating. A physical solution brings a temporary result. And the physical solution is a diet, called a diet. And so the result is temporary in nature without physical, emotional, and spiritual recovery, which is what this program offers. So what I found when I made the decision to abstain, um, it was a temporary decision initially, and it became after two ill-fated attempts at abstinence um, in my first six months. And again, I'm extremely grateful. It was a really big struggle in my first six months. I did not get it right away. I started abstaining right away. I had a host of reasons that came into town and viewed in one person. And there I went off my, my food plan or my diet. I stopped going to meetings, and I don't have enough time to talk about all this stuff. So... Um, <laughs> But what, I'm just going to go fast forward. I was able to lose my weight, and I've, um, I found that I couldn't stop my, my very low-calorie food plan. It was, I was driven really even for a long time by fear. I couldn't add the additional food to my food plan to um, weigh what I weigh today. So for seven years, my first seven years in program, I maintained my weight at about 105 um, 105, 103, 107, too thin, way too thin. I'd sit down, stand up, get dizzy. I, I just was okay with me. I was thrilled that I was hungry. It was like the most wonderful experience. I'm hungry, yay! It was like a celebration every day. I was so happy to be hungry because I had no experience of hunger, and it was physical hunger. It wasn't like I want to eat. I didn't have those thoughts. Once I decided to abstain no matter what, which that decision was made, 27 and a half years ago, on December 1st at 7.25 p.m., uh, that was when that decision was made. Um, I haven't, I can say that I, I, I've been eating two meals and basically three meals a day and nothing in between ever since except when I go for the international dateline and you don't know what hell, the hell time it is when you do that. Um, 
that drove me crazy. The first time I went to Asia, I'm going to digress for a minute. Not, this is like I'm still a little bit obsessed here. The first time I went to Asia, I think, was 1995. I've been there three times. I think that was the first trip to Asia. And no, it wasn't. It was 1991. 1991. I was counting the hours. You know, there's three meals a day and nothing in between. But how do you identify a day when you lose one, when you go there, and you gain one when you come back? And it was like I just couldn't stop thinking about it. How many meals do I have in this day when I don't know how long the day is? Is it 24 hours? No. Is it 28, 38? I'm not quite sure. So I had to let go of that and just decide that um, I just, I don't even know what I did. But by the third time to Asia, I decided that I go, I get on the plane and 24 hours, forget it. Who cares? I don't know who made that up. Somebody made it up. I'm going to make up a new day. So mine started when I got on the plane in LAX and when I got to Hong Kong or Bangkok or wherever I went, um, Bali, I think that was where I figured it out, that would be 24 hours. And I would just kind of like eat the meals. Three. Um, that was the second trip. The third time I said I could have a fourth meal because this is truly unreasonable. It really is like two, really two days, like 38 hours. Like you can get hungry. But I only had two, I think. Anyway, I decided it doesn't matter. Who cares? This is all in my head. Um, <laughs> I still eat three meals a day, nothing in between, unless I don't know. And this is a case of not knowing. Um, <laughs> But I didn't, I never, I knew that I would never be able to maintain my weight. And so that, I, I have, uh, I can say that it's, it's, it's doable, it's possible, and I, I owe it to God. I owe it to a higher power. I owe it to this program. I owe it to learning things I didn't even think I wanted to learn in this program. I owe it to the 12 steps and 12 traditions. I owe it to, this is one of my first big books. Part of it has disappeared. It's called The Cover. Um, the preface and the other parts of it. Um, I've bought many books over the years, and I seem to lose them on a regular basis. This one I haven't lost, so I'm buying all new books when I leave today. Um, I still have stacks of them at home, but not this particular one. But it, it, beyond my wildest dreams is the fact that one can abstain no matter what. I choose to abstain no matter what. This is still the bottom line premise of my life. I don't choose to abstain at a heavy weight. I've been a little bit heavier. I, I, don't, I haven't weighed myself in a couple of years. Um, getting on the scale still for me is anxiety producing. Oh, last year I had to get on the scale. I went for a physical and the doctor made me do it. And all these years, in like 27 years, I've always told the nurse, never mind, and told her what I weighed. And she just, they jumped back and they just, just listened. Okay, fine, what's the number? You know, you look okay. But this one wouldn't let me get away with it. And it was more weight than I thought I've weighed in 27, a lot of years. And I said, you know what, I weighed 120. I haven't weighed 120 in 20 zillion years. And it's a doctor's scale. The doctor's scale, you weigh more if you're on a doctor's scale. And I'm talking about physical here a lot. But, oh, well, whatever. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And, and I said, it doesn't really matter. Today I have peace of mind and serenity and surrender to a degree that I never dreamed possible. I want to fast forward to my experience, my current experience, and what's going on in my life now. Two things. One is work has been a very difficult area of, of experience and, and of recovery for me. Uh, the entire time I've been in this program, the entire time I've been alive, even when I wasn't working, because there's one common element when you work 
most of the time, you have to relate with other people and have relationships. You have to have relationships with other people. And I even worked out of my house for 10 years. I still had to have relationships with the people, with the company that I work for. And I've never been very successful at relationships. I've had friendships for many, many years in this program. Again, maintenance of um, the emotional uh, variety is something, maintaining relationships I never believed possible. But work relationships are very different than relating to a, a friend or even a peer at work. The relationship difficulties that I had in the work area were with authority and, now that I have subordinates, subordinates. And I've, I've had, this is a whole other day topic, but I didn't have any skills, for, again, for relating to people on an ongoing basis in a kind, loving, respectful manner because I didn't have those skills to relate to myself that way and didn't learn them in my family of origin. And I hung on to some very old ideas, and that is that if you would just do it my way, I'd be happy. And so I um, have long-term, you know, years of work experience for one company or another. I didn't jog a hop, but I really pretty much pushed away relationships. How much time do I have? Five minutes. Didn't really learn a lot about how to work through the issues in my relationships at work and how to rethink the challenges and the problems and the obstacles in my path. I hung on to old ideas of what things, quote, should be like, which reality doesn't match my shoulds. does not come close a lot of the time. Sometimes it does, and that's great. But I've had to have some really major paradigm shifts in the way that I think, what my expectations are of others, of myself, of situations, and start growing up. And I can say I've done a lot of growing up this last year. In fact, just in the last few months, I've had some very large quantum leaps in my experience. In the work area, I have I usually can find a, a chorus, the Greek chorus of voices standing behind me. Yes, you're right, you're right, you're right. There, da 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 da. And and I get, I'm able to garner a lot of agreement on my side of the story. And bright people, smart people, educated people will agree with me. And then I go into my experience in life at work, and I find out that things are quite not going to match this reality, and I keep bumping into people and walls and having very difficult, extremely painful, excruciating experiences that have driven me to lawyers because I think I'm being harassed, maybe. Um, maybe there's discrimination going on in a situation. I've gone through this with my company I'm with now, interviewing for jobs, ultimately getting job offers, and then in my most recent experience, a miracle happening beyond anything I could ever imagine, beyond anything I could ever imagine, where I called, I had an offer on my desk and in my hands and another one to negotiate the next day, and I called it off. And I had been in a huge amount of emotional pain over what was going on in this company. And what I, I called it off because I saw a huge shift happening, occurring in the company. And, and the problems were not just of my imagination or out of my own sense of um, lack of, of um, ability to relate to people or lack of perspective. Um, or any of those things. These were like real problems. And the company president 
announced to me, told me that he was taking my re- recommendation, which in one of these we have these email wars going on, um, and that was to bring in a third party to do a thorough and full examination, investigation of the situation, and he did, and he brought in a very expensive consulting company that does uh, psychological and uh, organizational development, and things are changing. And once that was announced, I started seeing things change. I still wasn't convinced, and then I started seeing some dramatic changes within three months, actually. People started treating me differently. They're starting to act nicer. But what's come back to me is I've changed. What has come back to me is that I've changed a lot, and I'm seeing that my thinking is different. I've I never knew the difference between, on a scale of 1 to 100, everything was 100. After all these years of recovery, I can tell you that up until two weeks ago, everything was 100 on a scale of 1 to 100. And every time I pick up the phone and my mother's on the other end of the phone, my mother lives in chaos, confusion, and drama on a daily, minute-to-minute basis. And I'm not that extreme, but in my own way, definitely. And it makes relationships in life very unworkable. I don't think that way anymore. There's a situation that um, really demonstrated it. I had to make a decision. Somebody was reading my mail. And I I went to, and I knew who it was. And this person wants control of my mail. I'm a professional. I've I've reached this station in my career. I mean, who the hell needs to read my mail? Don't I know what to do with it? Okay, I'm out of the office a lot, blah, blah. Anyway, someone's reading my mail. I'm really unhappy. I talk to the president. He agrees with me. And this person who's now running my department that I started, which is really okay with me in many ways and not okay in a couple of other ways, um, wouldn't let go. And I said to myself, I get my mail during the day. I'm not 100% positive I get all of it, and I've had some experiences where I know I'm not getting it, and they're very important documents I need to read. But how, in the big scheme, in the big picture, I'm told I'm getting my mail. I get to believe that I'm getting my mail. And am I going to ruin my life and leave this company, ruin my serenity over something I, right now, at this moment, don't have any control over? And guess what? I let go of it. I said, you know, there's another completely different way of looking at this. I can say, hey, someone's looking at my mail. They're throwing out, I get the junk mail. I don't get all of it. I do. I get everything that I need. God is in charge. God is really my employer. Everything is okay. And the voice in my head now is that everything is going to work out. And that is in the face of obstacles, in the face of conflict, in in the, the face of not knowing the end result, in the face of gray areas where things are undefined and I know the way I want the outcome to look and it doesn't look that way, and the way, in the face of walking through the tunnel and going to the other side, what the voice in my head today is everything is going to work out most of the time. Just 51% of the time, we'll say that. That's a brand new voice for me. I knew that nothing that it was ever going to work out. I knew it. I looked at everything that didn't work out instead of what was working out, which is most of my life. I had evidence, and whatever I choose to focus on gets bigger. And if I'm focusing on the problem, and I've heard this from Jean Smith for many years, who the most incredible woman I ever met in my life, and a couple of us know her, knew her, the problem always got bigger when I focused on the problem. And when I focused on the solution and I 
mentally discipline myself to look at the solution, the solution gets bigger. And while I'm doing that, I'm very, ter- very frightened that I'm forgetting something, that I'm going to drop the ball somewhere, that something's going to go wrong. But the louder voice is becoming focusing on the solution and knowing that God is in charge and everything is going to work out. In fact, it is working out. That is a miracle. And that is a result of maintaining my weight, maintaining my abstinence. And I believe maintaining my weight is part of that. I can't say I'm maintaining my weight if I was 25 or 50 pounds heavier and I just have huge, huge, huge three meals a day and nothing in between. Um, that's not my experience, so I can't really comment on that. But I know what I do is working for me today and that in the face of things that I haven't done before, that I will get through it. I've been asked to do something that absolutely terrifies me. And it's a woman in my field. Or she's not in my field, actually. She's a CPA. She's very well recognized in a number of organizations. And she asked me to be a keynote speaker. Well, not keynote speaker. A, a, a feature speaker for this, uh, this uh, California Society of Blah, Blah, Blah for continuing edu- education credit for CEOs and CFOs. And I thought, like, you know, can you do it on the 16th of July? We don't have a speaker. No, I really can't. I need time to prepare. I wish I said it like that. I said, what? Two weeks? Sixteen days? I've got surgery next week. And I thought, I was, well, anytime you want to do it. Okay, well, I am absolutely mortified of this of even doing my preparation, I have a master's degree in business. You know, I know how to do some of these things. I'm really, really frightened, and I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other because what I learned here was that you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step, and that's how my abstinence started. I knew I could not lose my weight. I knew I couldn't lose my weight, but all I have to do it do is do it one day at a time, one minute at a time, one moment at a time. That's all that's asked of me. Nothing more than that. And so with this new challenge, that's all that's asked of me. Start my research, do the next thing. That's it. And God will give me what I need when I need it. I don't have to get up and make an hour presentation on the 16th or tomorrow. What I get to do is to do the research and do the footwork. And the program teaches me that. This whole concept of maintenance applies to every area of my life. Because I want to, like, run and hide when things come up that I have not experienced or that that aren't easy. I really like to take the easier, softer way is what I would really prefer. And I could do this, but I wouldn't respect myself. I can say, no, I'm not a speaker. I've only been speaking in OA uh, for 27 and a half years. Now, I'm not speaking on this particular topic, but that's okay, and I need to learn this material, and I can take it and use it as a, use it as a template for other, other opportunities and other, other talks, and for me to grow and to continue to grow. It's time for me to stop. Thank you so much for sitting here and listening to me. You know, our, our next speaker... Uh, is there a Peggy here? I guess not. Um, thank you, Barbara. That was wonderful. It's always so good to listen to you. Um, I guess, well, our other speaker hasn't shown up. She must have gotten delayed unexpectedly. Um, we will now have questions from the Ask It Basket. Is the basket... Thank you very much.
Well, I was going to ask is, as if there's a group conscious, is there somebody here that has a, a long, a long time uh, maintenance? No? No, she isn't. She's got more than five years. Somebody has one of us. Come, please, come up. <laughs> okay. Is that Hi, I'm Nikki, compulsive overeater. Uh, oh my God! Speaking of oh my God, I hope he's with me, right? We'll just read. We'll open up here uh, and uh, read today and in for today. We are rarely proud when we are alone. I want Voltaire. I want to be with others as I am with myself. There are no pretenses or defenses or self-defeating attitudes. I'm learning not to hurt myself, so I play no games. I don't try to impress myself or act as if I'm important. I know better. I am closest to being myself when I'm with myself. Nowhere do I follow a script or play a part or pretend to be something I'm not. Overeaters Anonymous encourages me to be myself when I am with other members. As I share at meetings, it gets easier to put aside the silly cloak of pride that doesn't fool anyone and keeps my feelings locked up inside. For today, being myself is like abstinence. It feels good. Um, as I said, I'm Nikki, compulsive overeater, and, and uh, it's good to be here today. It's good to be at the, at the meeting. And just as a way of qualifying, I came into Overeaters Anonymous in 1980. Now, I wish I could tell you that I've been an abstinent all those, time, that, those years. I even wish that I could tell you that I kept coming back all those years. But I wasn't that bright. It took me a long time. Because when I came into these rooms, I used Overeaters Anonymous kind of like a diet club. It just wasn't the WW or the whatever that I had done countless times. And I thought I worked the steps. It doesn't mean that I didn't have a sponsor and I wasn't going to meetings and I wasn't reading and writing and doing all that. I did a four-step. I did all that, but I never got it. I never got what it really meant to make a commitment to abstinence. And I was abstinent. I was absent like for nine months, and I'd lose it. And I was absent for six months, and I was absent for 30 days. I was so I was absent so many 24-hour periods. I can't even count that high. But I never got it. I never made a commitment, and I lived under the illusion that I was powerless over food. 
a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity if I'd let him. Now, I took that a little too far. You see, I thought, God, that meant if I was powerless over food, God would crash my car before I got to the Baskin-Robbins store. You know, I, that, that was really kind of the way I thought. The seventh illusion that I lived under was I thought it was easy for the Barbaras. It was easy for the people who were abstaining. It must be easier for them because I couldn't do it. So, you know, I never got that, uh, just I didn't even know how to do it. And I gained up to my highest weight in these rooms. And my highest weight is 183 pounds and however much I gained after that before I uh, quit eating. And I couldn't stop. Could not stop eating. And here I was in these rooms. Oh, I lived over on the west side of L.I.A., you know, where it was at. And uh, <laughs> I thought, uh, and I couldn't handle the shame, the embarrassment, the guilt, the pain of going to meetings. And so I left. And I left. And I was only gone that time for about a uh, year. And somebody I'd sponsored called and said, please come back and let me sponsor you. And I did. And and so I got about almost a year, and I moved to Orange County. And I started going to meetings down there, and that wasn't where it was at. You know, it wasn't like L.A. It, it, it just wasn't. And what did these people have to offer me? I mean, the arrogance that I had at the time. I mean, I, it, it's unbelievable. So I, I left, and I left for eight years that time. And I started to school. I kept my weight off by compulsively exercising and starving and binging. That was what I did. And I started to school. And the vending machines got the best of me. And I started binging. And I was a junk food. I am a junk food junkie. Today I don't practice that disease, but that's who I am. And I couldn't get by 7-Eleven without stopping. You know, I was into that craziness. I'll only buy a small package here so they won't know. And then I went to the next one and bought another small package. Number one, as if they cared. You know, I, whoever they are. And so finally I crawled back into uh, Overeaters Anonymous. It'll be seven years in October. And by the grace of God, I've been abstinent uh since uh, December 16th of 1996. And I am so incredibly grateful. It gives me goosebumps to stand here and tell you that just like Barbara said, and Barbara's is one of my heroes. And I, uh, my friend Karen, I, we were, I lived in L.A., and, and then now I go around to these things and I hear Barbara speak, and I always say to Karen, oh, she is so neat. And so I was so glad to have her here today because, you know, we need to have heroes in, these, in this uh, program. We need to see people who have what, they want, what we want. We need to see people who are continuing to grow and to work the program. But I'm getting a little bit ahead. I'll just tell you quickly that uh, when I came back this time, I heard someone say it was on Christmas Eve of 1996. And someone who had at that time about 25, well, she had 24 years of absence because she has 30 now. And uh, we were sitting in a meeting. It was small because it was New Year's Eve. And we were sharing. And she says, oh, it's just awful. You know, her life was just in the pits at that 
moment in time like it gets. And she said, but I didn't eat over it yesterday, and I have no intention of eating over it today. I was stunned. I thought she didn't have any intention to eat. What is that about? You know, it's like, it was like news to me. You know how you hear something sometimes, and it was like, she's got a plan here. She didn't have any intention to eat. And from that moment, I started getting what a commitment was. And I started making, I started seeing that I had to make a decision not to eat, that I had to make a commitment to not eat, to do what, and for me to keep that commitment, that meant I had to do a few simple things. I had to have a sponsor, I had to go to meetings, I had to call in my food. Uh, for me, I had to weigh and measure my food. And, you know, I had, I had to write, I had to work the steps, and I really had to embrace this program as if it was my life itself. And in so doing, I've come to believe that this program is my life. This program has given me what I can't even believe I have today. One of the obvious things is, is like Barbara alluded to, I get to go to the closet and always pick out whatever I want to wear. And even today, when seasons change, I think I'll never be able to get into those white jeans. You know, because it's just that's what my head says when we go from winter to summer. I'll never be able to wear that red football. And it amazes me that I can still wear the same clothes. And uh, that... So I, I did the commitment thing, and, and I got a life. And I still do the commitment thing, and I still have a life, one day at a time. I, um, I had a really good career. God gave me a really good career. I was able to take care of myself, and I always regretted that I didn't go to school. Just always regretted. And when I graduated uh, from high school, it, I was back in Kansas, and it just wasn't something that you did. I didn't think. I didn't even think about. It. I didn't know how to do it. Well, I just graduated uh, with honors. What did it say about pride? Uh, <laughs> I just graduated from Saddleback uh, Community College in Orange County, and I'm starting at the university in the fall, and I'm majoring in women's studies. And oh, what a kick! And somebody the other day said to me, gosh, I'm 50 years old, and what I said, don't even talk to me. The best years of my life have been since I was 59, because I got this abstinence I was 59 years old. And today I'm 65, so you don't have to do math. And, uh, <laughs> and it's like, don't even talk to me. I had been married and divorced three times. Uh, that's the way my life didn't work. You know, it's like some people come in and they're fat and their life doesn't work. Some people come in because they have a few pounds that they want to lose. People come into these rooms for all reasons. I didn't have a monumental uh, amount of uh, weight to lose when I came in at that time. I had 25 pounds, which I don't look, I don't carry 25 more pounds real well, but, you know, I was managing. But my life didn't work. I started going to a Saturday meeting because... I couldn't stop yelling at my husband. 
And I believe today that I wouldn't be married today if it wasn't for this program. It's given me this program because I go to a Saturday meeting and somebody would say that she wanted to kill her husband that day, and I thought, well, I'm not alone. And so I'd go home and say, well, you want to have lunch? You know, I could just be normal. You guys, you know, you guys taught me. And I came into this room, I was so filled with shame, so filled with shame, I couldn't have said that I'd been married and divorced three times without dying. I moved to California from Kansas because I didn't want anybody to know. I thought, I come out here, I'll start over. Nobody will have to know because I was so filled with shame. And I came into these rooms and I started, little by little, like we were talking about being myself, little by little I started being who I was. Little by little, I started letting you guys see. And the first time I talked about that I'd been married and divorced three times, not one person got up from the room to run out and throw up. You know, nobody kept me out of the meetings. The next time I showed up, they said, Hi, Nikki, gosh, it's good to see you. And I thought, this is incredible. And so I started practicing. I started practicing on being who I am. And I did it in these rooms. And by feeling the acceptance and love that came back to me in these rooms, I started practicing being who I was out there. You know, my sponsor would say to me, Nikki, you don't have to be, you don't have to be open with everybody. You know, you don't have to go around telling everybody your life story because not everybody is going to like you after you hear it. Because there's going to be people that judge. So you can, you can see and you start, I started learning boundaries. I started learning boundaries. And if, the, and if this is, that's the other thing that that person said to me about she didn't intend to eat. The other thing she said, Nikki, if you don't learn to set boundaries in this uh, program, you will eat. She didn't say it like you might eat. She didn't say it like, no, she said you won't abstain. Is how she put it. And so I started learning how to set boundaries, and I did it from the loving people in here, and I watched. I watched how other people did it. And that's what this has been uh, like for me. And when I see young gals in this program like you and you, it's so exciting to me because you've got, you've got it all ahead of you. But I don't spend a whole lot of time regretting that I didn't get here sooner because I figure God got me here when he wanted me here. And today, uh, when you think about the beat goes on, I'm learning more today than I did because what I've learned is the longer you're abstinent, and I'm such a babe in the woods, I shouldn't be on this long-timers podium, but, I, but even with this little bit of abstinence, the longer I abstain, the more I get to grow. It's just funny how it works. And I said the other day, I was talking to my sponsor, and I said something about, oh, I think I haven't done step seven well on that. I think I'm not humble enough. Something's wrong. I'm not humble enough. And she says, no, I really think you're on step six on that. I don't think you're entirely ready to give that up. And that's the way this learns. And so then I get to look at that, and am I entirely ready? And that's the way the beat goes on for me. But the beat goes on with my daily commitment to work my program to the best of my ability and not eat no matter what. To have phone numbers in my head so that if the desire to eat is stronger than my desire to abstain, I'll use a tool. And I ask God every day to give me the willingness to reach for a tool instead of the food. And for people 
that are just starting out abstinent or just getting abstinent or hoping to get abstinent, when I called my sponsor that first day, I said to her, I don't think I can get through this day because I couldn't get through a day when I came back into this seven years ago. And I could maybe get to noon, maybe 2 o'clock, maybe 10 o'clock at night, but I couldn't get all day. I turned my husband into a binge buddy because I couldn't quit when he came home from work. You know, I did all that stuff. And uh, when I said to her, I don't think I can get through today, she says, well, I'll tell you what. You've given me your food today. Now, why don't you forget about it and go ahead and do life? And to the best of my ability, I've been doing that now, like I said, for about six and a half years, but it's totally through the grace of God. Without God and the gift that he's given me, he got me my, well, in the first place, he got my butt in this room. You know, we're the lucky ones. Not all the people get to find these rooms. He doesn't get everybody to these rooms. So the other thing I do is a lot of service. I sponsor and I do a lot of service because I figure Somebody had the light on when I came back, and I'm here. It's my job to keep the light on for the rest of the people. Thank you for letting me share. Uh, so, if we can have the basket, uh, basket, we'll. Did you ever have a temporary sponsor? Did you ever have a temp Did you ever have a temporary sponsor? And what was your experience in getting a sponsor other than looking for someone who has what you want? Either of you want to take it? My first sponsor fired me. food plan. And so after less than two weeks, she said, um, sorry, you're going to have to find somebody else. And I was really devastated because I just worshipped this woman. And so how I embarked on getting my second sponsor was at the time we had a phone list. I said, sponsor is at the top. And I went down and I looked at all the phone numbers and I found somebody who was toll free. And that's, that was my qualifier. She was a toll-free call. I didn't know if she had abstinence, how long she'd been in the program. I didn't know what she looked like. I didn't know anything. And I, um, God picked a really great person for me, uh, Pat Kennedy. She sponsored me for 18 months. She gave me the foundation of my recovery. Um, and that's how I got my first and my second sponsor. Uh, my third sponsor I, I heard speak. Remember Kathy? And I loved Kathy. After 12 months, of worshiping the ground that she walked on, Kathy said, I am no longer going to sponsor. I said, no, you can't do that. So I refused to accept her, um, her announcement, and, and I, um, I kind of like got into her life through the cracks in the window, through the door. Um, I like show up in front of her car. I, I would not let her not sponsor me, but she had made up her mind, and so I... Um, held on to this misguided idea that she was sponsoring me for a period of um, probably a couple of months, but she really wasn't. And she finally got sick and tired of me, and she took me like a little 
bunny in a basket, and she put me on the door of someone I did not want to sponsor me. I did not relate to whatsoever. It was a woman in her 70s who was this little old lady. And I, when she spoke, I, I, I thought she was speaking Greek. I didn't understand anything she said. She had a lot of abstinence. At the time, I think she had 16 years. And that was a lot of abstinence in those days, a lot. The only people that had a lot of time, like the kind of time that I have now, thank you, God, is like they were in AA. They weren't in OA. I didn't know anyone. Well, I didn't know Maxine yet. Uh, but <laughs> I kicked and screamed, and, and she opened the door and was very loving, lovingly accepted me into her life, and she sponsored me until the uh, moment that she died 13 years later. There I was without a sponsor again. That was 19, February 1989. And so I was sponsorless. And I did have one other temporary sponsor, Becky, who has been in San, living in San Diego for a long time. And she sponsored me for about a year. But So I've had some temporary sponsors. And I did not want another sponsor after Jean, and nobody could measure up to her. No one could, and no one can, and no one will. I had to accept the fact that I needed a sponsor, and no one was going to be Jean Smith for me. And... I got another sponsor, and this lady is really, really wonderful. I really adore her, and she's been sponsoring me for several years now. And I still think of Jean Smith, and I have to accept and love everyone for who they are, and I get to. I get to do that, and I have a wonderful sponsor with a little more time than I have and great sense of humor and a great program. So I've, I've kind of run the whole gamut um, of – and I still – I. 27 years of abstinence and a half, and, and sponsoring is a really important part of my program, of having a sponsor and also sponsoring others and giving it away. It's really important to me. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Uh, Nikki, how about this question for you? What is the most pivotal, pivotal thing you got in OA to keep abstinence? Well, in seconds that I'll talk about sponsoring. <laughs> uh, what is the most pivotal thing got in OA to keep you abstinent? I guess the single most uh, important thing that I found out was that I had to do something and that it was up to me to make a commitment to abstain, uh, without a doubt, because I always wanted uh, – I was always out there looking for the, the fix. You know, the easier, softer way. That was me, I'll tell you. I spent thousands and thousands of dollars and lost 50 pounds more time than you could shake a stick at. Because uh, I always thought there was an answer that it didn't, and it wasn't me. So just really realizing that I was the problem, that I had a disease, and that by asking God to help me keep a commitment on a daily basis, that I could have the promises of this program. How about this one, Barbara? Do you have experience with being a double winner, I think it says, or or cross addictions? Okay. You want to say that one? Well, I have a friend that says she's been addicted to everything but housework. <laughs> and that's kind of my story. 
mean, well, I used alcohol, but I'm not in, in AA because I stopped drinking when I still could. But when I quit drinking, I started smoking. And when I finally stopped smoking, I was up to two and a half packs a day. And I quit for two years one time and gained, gained weight. And I thought, oh, this doesn't work. I'll start smoking again. Trust me. Once you know how to eat, because I started smoking again, and then I was just a fat smoker. <laughs> and uh, because it didn't work anymore. And then, uh, well, it probably goes without saying that if I was married and divorced three times, I probably used men. And food, however, was my last holdout. And uh, so that's my experience. And I think for me, I had to take, I had to walk the path that I was given. And for some reason, God gave me the ability to stop drinking when I needed to. And it was because I was terrified of becoming like my dad, who was an alcoholic. He gave me the willingness to quit smoking at one time because I was ter- terrified of dying of emphysema, like my dad had. And he gave me the ability to stop using men because I came to realize that in using men, I was abusing myself. He gave me the willingness to stop eating by making me see that my life did not work and that food was the last thing on the block. Thank you. is how do you keep it simple and this is hysterical because I know how to complicate everything. I got a PhD in complication. That's a new college course. Um, I could teach it. I, we, could, we could sit with call, different topics and, and categories for four years. I can do that. Um, I'm learning how to keep it simple by understanding what's important. Now in the beginning I, I, made, I made a decision very early on, which, um, and, and that is that I would have seen no matter what. No matter what, no matter what, no matter what. And so what that did is it cut to the chase in simplifying my life. I went to work. I, I turned in my food every night. I called it in. Actually, I wrote it down every night. I called in my, to my sponsor at 7.20 in the morning. I went to work. I came home. I ate exactly what I turned in, except once during the day I would call and I would change it. Because every single day I would change it, I wanted that control. I'll have cauliflower instead of broccoli. This was really important to me. So um, that's what I did. I did that for a year and a half because I called my food in for a year and a half. And I, I, I went, to, um, went, to, went to work, came home, ate, ate my dinner, went to a meeting, went to coffee, and that's what was my, my life was very, very simple. My entire social life revolved around OA. I knew no one else. OA stood for only answer to me. That was it. And it still it really is only answer because of the principles of the program that I've learned and about li- li- learning. I've learned how to live my life by understanding and find, discovering what the principles of the program are and the things that I always ran from. So keeping it simple has a lot to do with how I live my life today as well, where my life is very, very rich and full. I have a very full career. Um, um, I have a lot of wonderful relationships. And keeping it simple is much more actually difficult 
I think for everyone, even outside of the program, because we're in a 24-7 world, you know, the cell phone, and thank God I don't have a pager, and uh, people can call at any time, and the demands um, just never end. And so keeping it simple is also a goal of mine. <laughs> How do I simplify my life even more as it as the path gets richer and, I, and new opportunities present themselves to me? How do I do that? So it's a, it's a one day at a time opportunity for me to make the decision on what is important. What I found out was that it's, I picked up a book when I was in, in Boston. I had never been to Harvard or Harvard Square. So I have this wonderful client that has a, a, a division there. And the last time I was there, I went to Harvard Square and went to a bookstore. And I found out that it's not about time management. It's about managing my energy. And there's, there's 24, 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. But how am I going to dedicate, where do I want to dedicate my energy? Part of it is changing my focus and looking at the positive. So I am focusing by doing that and changing channels. I'm putting my energy where I'm going to get something back and I have much more to give. That's a change in my focus, and that has everything to do with keeping it simple because I could run around like a rat on a cage and keep going around and squirrel cage thinking and not get anywhere. And I still do that to some, to some degree, and sometimes I get into confusion, and the best thing for me is to turn to God and to sit down and to ask God what I'm supposed to do. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. In fact, I don't know what I said. <laughs> but before I came in here, I turned it over to God. And to, to the extent that I turn my will and my life over to God is to the, the extent of my serenity. And even when things are very complicated and I'm, I have a very, very busy day, when I start my – I always start my day with God. I always start my day with prayer and meditation. But as I bring that into my 24 hours during the day and I infuse my life, embellish it with God, that's where I – that's where the that's where the result the result is that my life is simpler and I have inner, inner peace and serenity. So this is a really great question and it's sometimes a very very deep challenge. But the twelve steps give me a vehicle for getting there. Thank you. Well, one of the things that came to my mind when I was listening to Barbara talk about keeping it simple that I kind of embraced and still do embrace as part of my program is our tradition which says our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive overeating and to carry the message to those who still suffer. And I try to apply that self that tradition to my own life in an effort to keep it simple. That bottom line, my primary purpose today is to abstain from compulsive overeating and to carry the message and I carry the message by talking to my sponsees by talking to my sponsor by going to a meeting and sometimes because I get real I have a lot of just anxious energy and stuff like that and if I keep it if I just bring it down bottom line bring it back bottom line then it helps calm and center me and God has this is something relatively new uh I mean, as far as I have this daily consciousness that God recently gave this to me, maybe a year ago, that I started thinking that way. And it really does help me keep it uh, simple because I, too, can complicate everything. I'm not doing it right. 
Uh, if only I was doing what someone else was doing, then my life would be more perfect. You know, I can do all that stuff. And if I just really try to focus on what is your primary purpose today? Because bottom line, if I'm abstinence, abstinent, even when things have gone wrong during the day, it's, it's been an okay day because I haven't exasperated the problem by eating over it. So for what it's worth, thanks. Well, those were all the questions. Um, now it is time to close this workshop. Uh, please join me in a moment of silence followed by the seventh step prayer. And before we do that, I think we should give thanks. Once again, thank you, Barbara, and Nikki for doing such a wonderful job. Anyway, let's have a moment of silence, and then we'll do the seventh step prayer.